And bear with me a little bit. I'm getting dragged kicking and screaming into the uh, 21st century. For the first time ever, I'm going to be using slides. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll get there. Um, every time I start to prepare for a message, and every time I get ready uh, to stand up here to preach God's word, well, for as long as I can remember anyway, I approach it with the mentality that this may very well be the last message I am blessed and have the ability to preach. And today is no different. And it goes beyond just recognizing the frailty of man. I mean, I know anything can happen from a car wreck to a heart attack to a lightning bolt to a meteor strike, anything. Uh, it goes much deeper than that. Somewhere deep inside of me, I struggle with one of these days, God is going to figure out just how dirty I am, and he's just not going to use me anymore. So every time he, he blesses me with another message, I am just in awe. I'm thankful for his continual mercy and his grace, and I'm thankful for him uh, yet again uh, deciding to use me. And as I've prayed, I, I do ask that you not focus so much on the messenger, but the message itself. I recognize I'm rough around the edges. But uh, I pray that this message touches your heart in some way. Uh, there's another person uh, I want to talk to you about real quick that also uh, stood in awe of God's mercy and grace. Uh, and that was, that was David, King David. You know, sometimes we think about King David as being the first king of Israel. Uh, and if we do that, we're mistaken. Because we have a tendency to forget Saul. Because Saul was a mistake. And wouldn't we all like to forget our mistakes? Saul was certainly a mistake. He was the king that man chose. David was the king that God chose. We're told that David was a man after God's own heart, but he was still just a man. And we're told that David, although he loved God, he loved God with the purest of love, honored God. Yet one day, David looked out his window, saw another man's wife, and lusted. He slept with her. She got pregnant and then conspired to have her husband, a righteous and just and honorable man, murdered to try to conceal and to hide his sin. And while he may have on some level been successful of hiding his sin from the people, he was not able to hide his sin from God. And so at some point, God, through the prophet Nathan, reached out to him. His heart was burdened and, and struck with the knowledge of how sinful he had been. And there in Psalm 51, he comes to a, a prayer of repentance. And he is overwhelmed by the knowledge that here he is, a sinful, wretched man needing a gracious 
and merciful father. David, we have a lot in common with David. But it's not just us. Our failings are the failings of all men and women. Today we're going to be asking the question, what does the Lord require of man? Is it up there? How about that? Look at that. What does the Lord require of man? We'll be taking the majority of our reading from the book of Micah, chapter 6. Who is Micah? We don't know that much about the man, even though Jeremiah did mention him directly in his, his prophecy. Micah was a contemporary, which means he preached or, or prophesied along with and at the same time as the prophet Isaiah. That's why you'll see some of their, their wording and a lot of their prophecy sounds similar because they're preaching at, at a similar time. Uh, Micah's prophecy uh, is delivered at a time of great upheaval uh, as a result of the righteous judgment of God upon Israel and Judah. Because of their sins, uh, they had completely turned their back on God. And some of the, just the, some of the uh, sins that they were doing was uh, not just uh, in, in worship, but also, I mean, they had gotten to a point where they were literally sacrificing and killing their babies on an altar to Moloch. Uh, God's judgment upon them was right and just. And as often the case, as we look to Israel and their interaction with the Lord and vice versa, uh, we see a parallel between our own walk with God, our own sinful nature, along with our constant rebellion against God and His holiness, it's mirrored by the consistent backsliding and the apostasy of Israel. Now, in the early chapters there of Micah, one through... And by the way, there's only seven chapters of Micah. Uh, scholars and theologians would classify him as a minor prophet, not because of his prophecy having a minor impact, but because there's only seven chapters. Uh, unlike Isaiah, which they'll classify a contemporary, preached at the same time, they consider him a major prophet who obviously had far more uh, uh, chapters, far more writing available for us to read. Uh, but before you start to think, well, I'm just going to discount what Micah has to say because there's only seven chapters and a minor prophet, we know a lot about Daniel. We remember Daniel, the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the dreams, the handwriting on the wall. Daniel is also considered a minor prophet. But uh, we have here in Micah in the first five chapters the case as to why God is judging Israel. Is laid out before them. Here is your sin. Here is what you have done. And then we get there to chapter 6, verse 6. And uh, now as it, Micah starts to kind of, instead of speaking for God, he's now putting his place in, in, in Israel's place and asking the question, well, what is it, God, do I need to do? Yes, we've sinned. Yes, we've done things wrong, but... What is it now that I'm, I'm supposed to do with this information? So he says there in verse, uh, verse 6, What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? 
Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams or with ten thousand streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression? And, and this, this line there should, mean, should have more impact when you realize, again, this was something Israel was guilty of doing, killing their children. He says, should I stoop to that level and give my firstborn child as a sacrifice, the offspring of my body for my sin? In other words, he's asking the question, what is the cost of my sin. What is my sin going to cost me? Lord, how can I get out of this? Micah cries out when faced with the reality of his sins, with reality of Israel's crimes and transgressions. He cries out. He says, they are guilty. I am guilty. The sentence has been pronounced. What can we do to make this right? What must we pay To pay off this debt, surely there must be a sacrifice that can be made on my behalf. One lamb isn't going to be enough, but maybe 10,000 lambs. One one curse or one bottle of oil isn't enough, maybe a thousand rivers of oil. What do I have to give to pay for my sin? In short, the answer to these questions, what is the price and the cost of our sins is found for us in Romans 6.23, which reminds us, for the wages of sin is death. Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, Everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. We are cursed. Is there not a sacrifice I can give? Isn't there something I can do? David, which I mentioned, struggled with that same question. God, I've done so. You've put me in a position of leadership. Here I am, the king of Israel. You have anointed me as king over your people. And look what I have done. There must be something I can do, some sacrifice I can come to you with. And he says there in Psalm 51, verse 16, he says, he comes to this reality. You do not want a sacrifice or else I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. So we ask the question, God, if not an offering, what can I do to make this right? What is it that you require of me? And the truth, how do we please God? And what does the Lord require? It's found for us there in the eighth verse. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good. And what it is that the Lord requires of you? To act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with God. Is that all? I got that. That's easy. And if we take a quick glance at those three things, we may walk away with that same type of arrogant mindset. That's all. No problem. Act justly, love faithfulness uh, or or mercy, and walk humbly with God. Ah, I got this. 
However, as we take a deeper look and we start meditating on exactly what God is requiring of us, this righteous path that he has laid out before us, what what seemed easily achievable, we've come to understand that standard set out uh, for us by our creator is impossible to be maintained. It's a standard in which we can't meet. So what does that standard look like to the modern Christian? What what exactly in application does act justly, love faithfulness, and walk humbly with your God, what does it look like to you, to me? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 32. No foul language should come from your mouth. I'm guilty. I messed that up. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice, and be kind and compassionate one to another, forgiving one another. Well, that, that certainly sounds good, but I, I, I don't know if I can do that. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 11. Finally, all of you, be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult. Uh, that's, that's, I don't know if I can do that at all. Giving a blessing. For one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from the evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. This is impossible. Without a proper relationship with God. Because of our sinful nature. Has severed that relationship. And when this reality hits us. And when we are real, come to the realization. That what God requires of you. What God requires of me. And no burnt offering. No sacrifice can make, make that difference. We are left with the same, exact same standard or realization that Micah is there in the seventh chapter. Woe is me, he says. In the CSB, he says, how sad for me. For I am like one who, when the summer fruit has been gathered after the gleaning and the grape of the harvest, finds no grape clusters to eat, no early fig, which I crave. He's empty-handed. He has nothing of value to offer God. What is it that you possibly have? What is it that you possibly possess? That you can offer this morning to the creator of all things.
He continues there in verse 2. Faithful people have vanished from the land. There is no one upright among the people. All of them wait in ambush to shed blood. They hunt each other with a net. Both hands are good at accomplishing evil. Well, it starts to sound a lot like the world we live in today, doesn't it? The official and the judge demand a bribe. When the powerful man communicates his desires, they all plot it together. The best of them are like a briar. The most upright is worse than a hedge of thorns. The day of your watchman, the day of judgment, the day of your punishment is coming. At this time, their panic is here. Do not rely on a friend. Do not trust the close companion. Seal your mouth for the woman who lies in your arms. From the woman who lies in your arms. You can't even trust your spouse. Surely the son considers his father a fool. A daughter opposes her mother. And the daughter-in-law is against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are the men of his own household. Ever feel betrayed by even those who, who should be the closest to you? Oh, how wicked a world that we live in, my friends. See, times have changed, but the people have not. We are just as wicked today as Israel was back in Micah's day. And these divinely inspired verses that we read there in Micah, well, it sounds awfully familiar to what Jesus would say to his disciples as he prepared them, as he prepared us to go out to spread the gospel. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 21, he would say to them, Thy brother will deliver up brother to death and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. See, there is now and has always been since the fall of man in the garden a separation between God and man. Between creator and his creation. The world and man in his sinful flesh hates God. and Therefore it also hates those who strive to live a life pleasing to him. In John 15, 18 it says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And in Romans 1, 29 and 30, he says, Being filled with all, mal- with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossipers, slanderers, and haters of God. Insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, and disobedient to parents. That sounds a lot like us without God, does it not? And what was... What was Micah's response? Woe is me. Not the world. Woe is me. I have nothing worth giving to lay on the altar. Woe is me, I am lost and undone. Woe is me, for my righteous acts are like filthy rags. You see, Micah here is faced with a similar reality Paul is faced with in the 6th and 7th chapter of Romans. In fact, Paul is left to exclaim there in verse 24, 
the same thing. Oh, wretched man that I am, woe is me. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And just as there has always been this war between God and fallen man in the world in which we live, Paul reminds us of this. In the 18th verse, he would say, For I know that nothing good lives within me, that is, in my flesh. For desire to do good, what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. You know what? Sometimes we say, I've made a mistake. And sometimes we make mistakes. But you know what is even sadder? Is a lot of times, unfortunately, some of us, if not all of us, at one point in time, have willfully and knowfully done that which we know we shouldn't do. And turned our back on that which God has called us to do. Woe is me for doing that. Woe is you for doing that. So Paul says there in verse 21, he says, there's a law. Here's a fact. So I discovered this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law. I love God. I love God's word. I want to do what's right in God's eyes. I do. But I see a different law in my parts of my body, raging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. Doesn't matter how much I try, no matter how hard I want to live right, no matter how often I go and repent of my sin, it seems like the very next day I've tripped and stumbled and I'm right back in it again. So what is our conclusion? no hope we're all going to perish no for Paul being inspired by God would also write there in verse 24 and 25 O wretched man that I am who will rescue me from this body of death thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord so then with my mind and my and myself, I am serving the law of God, but my flesh, the law of sin. And remember what Micah, let's go back to where Micah. And I love how we see there in the Old Testament. Some folks want to discount the Old Testament and, and say it's not relevant anymore. Man, there is so much gospel there if you're just willing to look. There in Micah, remember what he says here? He says, God requires me to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. How do we do this? How do we live justly, mercifully love one another and walk humbly with God and by walking not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit? If you continue to read there in Romans chapter 8, you know how you do that? By walking after the Spirit and not after the flesh. And in closing, what was Michael's final thoughts? Verse 7, he would say, But I look to the Lord. I will wait for God, my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, and each and every one of us have. I love his faith. I will stand up. 
Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him. I must endure the Lord's fury until his champions may cause and establish justice for me. He will bring me into the light and I will see his salvation, he says. Verse 18, he continues. Who is God like you? God, who is there like you? He says. Forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not, God does not hold on his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. Verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will again have compassion on you. He will vanquish our iniquities and will cause our sins, cast our sins, excuse me, into the depths of the sea. And my friends, that's some good news, isn't it? My friends, that's, that's the heart of the gospel. John 1, 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Micah says that God will take that sin, that iniquity, and cast it into the sea of forgetfulness, my friends. It's that Far from us. Remember David? All that David had done? Lust, adultery, murder. And he said there in the 16th verse, For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in my burnt offering. Perhaps you say, I've done bad. I've done too much. I've been like David. I've committed murder. I've committed adultery. I've committed slander. I've sinned. God, you don't know how bad I am, but God does. And for me, woe is me. There is no hope for me. There is no offering worth taking to God. I've been trying to clean myself up. I've been trying to make myself right before I get to him, but I just can't do it. David said there is no sacrifice. There is nothing you can give. Nothing, no deal you can hatch. I remember in my youth, I used to say when I have got out of the will of God, God, I'll give up this if you just forgive me. God, I'll do that if you would just forgive me. God, I will do this and that and I'll take, take, take this from me, God, as a way of punishment or sacrifice if you would just restore me back where I need to be with God. I would try to bargain with God. God doesn't want that. God doesn't require that. David would say there, as an answer, as a conclusion, then, well, how do you deal with your sin? How do you come to God? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contract heart. These, O God, you will not despise. I'm not going to give a traditional invitation. You know, I'm sure in, in seminaries, which I've never been to, that they probably teach a class on how to give the perfect invitation. I'm not going to stand up here and beg you and plead. 
I'm not going to walk down the aisle and start beating you over the head with a word of God and dragging you up to the altar to tell you to get things right. I'm not going to do that today. But here's what I am going to do. I'm going to urge you, if there is something in your life that's separating you from God, if there is something in your life that I pray today would be the day that you just give that up. Come to God with a broken heart. Don't stop trying to fix it yourself, guys. Stop trying to will and deal with God. Recognize the fact that what God truly requires of you, you can't do it. Rest and trust in His grace and His mercy and His love. Confess your sins, and He is faithful and just to forgive you of those sins. And it's my prayer today as we get ready to leave, and if y'all would stand and we'll pray and we dismiss, be dismissed, it's my prayer today that if there is something that's hindering your walk with God, that today will be the day that you will turn that over to Him. Let us pray. Father, I ask, Lord, that you will bless this congregation and all those, Lord, that have heard this word this morning, whether it be here in person or, Lord, over the Internet. I pray, Lord, that your word will touch our hearts, motivate us, Lord, not to rest on our own strength, but, Lord, to trust in your grace and to trust in your mercy. I ask, Lord, that you would continue to watch over our church. Remember the needs of our church family. Lord, those that are sick and ailing and injured, Lord, we know, Lord, there are those, Lord, with with hurt bodies. We know, Lord, there are those, Lord, that are, are, are sick and ill. We pray, Lord, for those. We pray for healing. Lord, we also, Lord, know that there are those with broken hearts. We also know, Lord, that there are those, Lord, who just simply lack the desire at this point, and I pray for them as well. I pray, Lord, that you would help us all to trust in your mercy and your grace on a daily basis. Forgive us for where we failed you, Lord. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us as a church to be your hands and feet. Let your light and your love shine through us into this lost and dying world. And let everything we do be a testimony of just how much you love us. All these things we ask in your name. Amen.